Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to those who did receive Him, to all who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. For God so loved the world, that he gave. Merry Christmas, church family. All right, a couple of y'all are ready. Let's do that again. Merry Christmas. All right, that's better. Last week you had an excuse. You had turkey hangover. This week is Christmas time, okay? Might be 60 out today. I don't know what it'll be, but it is time to celebrate the Christmas season. And we're going to continue today in our series called The Gift of God. We're in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 through this series, and we're talking about the gift that God gave us in Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, you can mark that. I'm going to pray for us here in just a moment. And if you're a guest with us, I just want to let you know about our Christmas Eve service coming up. You'll hear more about it at the end of the, the service. So make sure you get some tickets. So we've got a Christmas Eve service. Christmas Eve is on a Sunday this year, and so we want to make sure that you're invited to that. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to keep going in this series. Uh, let me just pray that God would speak to us right now. Father, I come before you right now um, with this whole church family, and I just ask you uh, to speak to our hearts this morning. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that I bet many people have seen many times. And God, will you show us something new? Will you show us something about ourselves? God, help us to not be people that look at the Word and walk away and forget what we've seen, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would transform us, that we would allow you to enter into our story, that we wouldn't have things so tight-knit and under control that, that you can't invade God, I pray you would invade our stories today. I pray that you would help us to know how loved we are, that we would receive your love. You'd help us to know your grace, your mercy, your power. God, I pray by your power you'd do things I couldn't even ask you to do right now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're doing this series called The Gift of God, and last week, as we started off, I started sharing with you others, different places throughout the New Testament, we see this phrase, gift of God given. We just read a verse from Ephesians chapter 2. You're saved by grace through faith, not of your works, it's the gift of God. No one can boast, it's a gift of God. He gives us a gift. The wages of sin, what we earn is death, separation from God, but the gift of God, what He gives us is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? And then we just saw in the video, for God so loved the world that he gave. He is a giver, John 3.16. I heard somebody amen that even when the video was on, that he's a giver to us. And I saw a passage this week that I didn't mention last week that just struck me. In John chapter 4, there's a woman at the well. And she's had five guys that are her husband. And the guy she's shacking up with right now, she's not even married to. And in the midst of her desire for satisfaction through men, she comes into contact with Jesus. And then Jesus asks her for a drink and then says to her, if you knew the gift of God, 
And who it is that speaks to you to ask me for a drink of water? Because I give living water. I give real satisfaction. And so that's what we're talking about in this series is the gift of God, which is Jesus Christ. We're receiving that gift. There are many things that come with that. And this is the first time that we've done a series in all the Christmases that we've been to church. We've been about 10 years. We've had different Christmas series. The first time we've done a series called The Gift of God. But I think it's almost every year we talk about gift exchanges or some kind of gifts just because of the nature of what happens. You're going to see marketing over the next several months or several weeks, I mean, that are, that are going to be, you know, buy this gift for this person and somebody's going to tell you what gift they want. Maybe you're thinking about the gifts that you want. And there's lots of gift giving at this time of year, which can be good and can be bad. Depends on if it's a good gift or a bad gift, right? And we'll rate all those the day after Christmas when we meet together uh, and get all the receipts. I remember I worked in retail, and that was the busiest day, uh, the day after Christmas. And you didn't have to have a receipt. I remember one person returned a sweater that was like eight years old, and the, the manager was just like, just take it. Just go. We don't want people backed up at the registers. And there's all these gifts that happen. And so throughout the years, I've mentioned this, and y'all have been pretty good about interacting with me about gifts. I remember I was looking through, I remember there was one year that I talked about Sky Mall Magazine and wondered if anybody actually bought things from Sky Mall Magazine. And then somebody wrote on my social media afterwards that they did all of their Christmas shopping from Sky Mall Magazine. If you've never seen this before, just, I must have been on a plane when I was writing the introduction to this message or whatever it was, and I went through and I started talking about Christmas presents you could buy. One of them was that you could decorate your car like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So anybody who's into buying costumes for your car, you may be in the parking lot today. Here's, here's a picture. Those of you who may want to check one of those out. And I told you you all interact with me. Do you know what happened the next week on Sunday? So I did this one week. The next week, you know, we always challenge people to worship one service and serve one. So some people must have worshiped one service, and then the next service, they went out and decided their service was going to be to decorate my car like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, only here's the reality. They didn't do the Sky Mall version. They had real antlers stuck to my car. There was like these deer antlers with suction cups on them stuck to the windows of my car. They had decorated that. Thank you. Be blessed if you're still part of our church today. Appreciate that. <laughs> and there was one year where I did an introduction to a message, and I talked about the worst gifts you could give, and I did a, a top ten list. So think about what could be on that list, like crazy sweaters, ugly ties, tube socks. Everybody gives socks. Nobody wants socks, by the way. Tube socks. And one person's out there like, I like socks. What are you talking about? You could give crazy clothes like our elders decided to wear at our Christmas Eve celebration that we had. Uh, they didn't know necessarily that these were going to be up here on the slides today, but we'll show you a picture of some of the guys from our Christmas Eve par our Christmas party we had. That's one of our elder leadership team member, John Reeves and Vern Kivett, if you want to hit them up on social media. There's a little rumbling going on that maybe all of the guys on our leadership team are going to wear suits like this to our Christmas Eve service. Another reason for you to get your tickets and so you can come and be entertained by those clothing. Bad gifts that are out there. Bad things that can happen. And so I had this top 10 list that I was going to go through, and I was going to tell everybody, like, and, and just think about this from the perspective of the speaker, okay, not from the listeners. I'd already given the tech team the pictures of the top 10 worst gifts you could give somebody. It was my list. It wasn't necessarily everybody's list. I knew some people could be offended by the things that were on this list, but I didn't think it could be too bad until before the service, right before it was going to start, two people came up to me and gave me, independently of one another, the exact same gift, trying to bless their pastor, not as a joke, and it was on my top 10 list. And so I remember going to one of the elders and like, hey, look. And then, you know what it was? Can you guess what it was? Fruitcake, Fruitcake yes. And some of you like that. I, I agree with Jim Gaffigan, the comedian. Have you ever seen him talk about this? He says, there's two good things. Cake is good. Fruit is good. You put them together. It's disgusting. I think fruitcake is disgusting. And somebody gave, two people gave this to me, not as a joke. And so I went to this elder and I was like, hey, it's already on the slides. I'm about to talk about it. What do I do? I went for it, just so you know. And neither one of those couples still goes to our church. <laughs> Probably my fault. Do you feel bad for them or me? I'm not sure what happened just now. <laughs> There's lots of, lots of gifts out there 
That was a gift for me that was hard to receive because of the tension it put me in in that moment. I'm about to stand up in front of a couple hundred people, and I know a couple people might be bothered by this. What do I do? I don't want to mess up the tech team. And it was hard to receive that gift. Have you ever received a gift that was hard to receive? Has anyone ever given you a gift that was difficult for you to receive? And maybe for different reasons. Maybe you open it up and you're like, I hope you kept the receipt. This is terrible. Maybe somebody gave you a gift and you're like, well, this is, I don't deserve this. Psychologists say that sometimes we have a hard time receiving gifts because of the intimacy in receiving a gift. So think about it. If you give a gift, you're in control. You know what's in that wrapper. You know what you're doing. You know what your desired outcome is. When you're receiving a gift, there's some trust that you're, you're, you're giving to the person that you're receiving the gift from. There's some vulnerability in receiving a gift. Have you ever received a gift that was hard to receive? For some people, I had one friend who knew I was speaking on this and actually had looked at some of my notes for the message and then ended up telling me that, that a gift that she had a hard time receiving one time was from her dad because she knew her dad sacrificed so much to give her the gift. So have you ever had a gift that's hard to receive? If so, you can probably identify with what we're going to talk about today. Today we're going to talk about the gift that's hard to receive. And before I even tell you what it is, know this. You have to receive this gift if you're going to experience Christmas the way that God desires for you to experience Christmas. In fact, if you're going to live the life that God desires for you to live, you have to receive this gift. And we know a lot about this gift. We sing songs about it. We know the concept of it. Some of us can define it, tell stories about it. We like the stories of it. The question I'm asking you today is, have you received this gift? It's the gift of grace. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 26, picking up where we left off last week. Last week, we started this passage of Scripture in, in the Luke story of Jesus Christ. Remember I told you, it started kind of like this. If you've ever watched a movie where it says six months prior, like before the story really begins, this is what set this whole deal up. And that's what the passage was last week. And remember our, our historical context for what's happening here is that Luke is a historian. He wasn't somebody who walked with Jesus. And he knew Paul really well. He writes two bestsellers, the book of Luke, the book of Acts. One's about the story of Jesus, that's the book of Luke. One's about the story of the church. But why does he write Luke? Remember he doesn't write to a general audience. He doesn't write to a bunch of Jews and write to a bunch of Gentiles. He's writing to one guy, one guy that he has a burden for. And at our church, I always ask you the question, who are you burdened for? Who is it that if they died today, they would not spend eternity with God? And that you're praying for, and that you want to share the gospel, maybe even this Christmas, share the gospel with that person. For Luke, that's who he's writing to here. This is his one. Most excellent Theophilus, verse 3. And then verses 5 through 25, we looked at the story of the announcement of the birth of a guy named John the Baptist, who'd be the forerunner to Jesus Christ. And the passage of Scripture we come to today, it's six months later. Now it's the announcement of the birth of Jesus. But everything about this story is actually a contrast to what we saw last week. Where last week, it might, maybe if you had a hard time relating with Zechariah, who's a religious elite, he's a priest, he's an older guy, you should have no hard time at all this week identifying with Mary, a 14-year-old girl who's poor in this town that's a terrible town to be from, there's a little girl instead of an older guy. The situation, totally different. Instead of a barren woman, it's a virgin, a young girl, instead of an older lady. The scenario, opposite. everything's opposite here. And all of it screams grace. Look at it with me. The gift of grace, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now where it was last week? It was in Jerusalem. It was said that if you wanted to be spiritually blessed, you went to Jerusalem. If you wanted to be materially blessed, you went to Galilee. So you don't expect God to show up in this place, in Galilee, and of Nazareth of Galilee of all places, to a virgin betrothed. That means pledged to be married, more than our engagement, but not quite married if they hadn't consummated the marriage, to a man whose name was Joseph 
of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. And she had no idea how literal this would be. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at his saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Why? Why not be afraid, Mary? For you have found favor with God. And verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And we'll stop there. We'll go all the way through verse 38 today, Lord willing, but we'll stop right there for right now. Everything about this already screams grace. The place where the God comes streams grace. Why would he come to Gal- of Nazareth of Galilee? That's grace. To who he comes to, did you notice there's no information here about how she's blessed, how she's blameless, how she's righteous, but they talked about that last week with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Why not talk about it this week? Because it's all by grace. Grace is what you don't deserve. It's when you receive something you don't deserve. The place screams grace. The person screams grace. The gift itself, Jesus, verse 31, is the gift of grace. That's grace in the flesh, Jesus Christ. See, John chapter 1, verse 17 tells us that, that when Jesus came and the flesh came, grace and truth. Everything about this screams grace. Here's the problem. Even if you've only been to church a couple times, you come to church at Christmas time, the likelihood is either you heard this story or a story about some shepherds. We're going to get the shepherds in a little bit. But here's what we do with this story. Because of our familiarity with it, we sterilize this story. We domesticate this story, and essentially what we do is we castrate this story. If you allow that to happen, you will miss the point that God has for you this morning. Don't sterilize this story and just think because you know the details of this story. It's not just about God coming into this girl's life, this young girl, and it's a crazy situation. She submits to it. End of story. We're done. That's it. No, this story is all about grace, and you have to enter into this story and ask yourself some hard questions in order to grasp what's happening here like this. Why is she troubled? What's God actually doing here? Not just in her life, in the world. What's he doing in your life? And ask yourself this question, what does he want to do in my life today? Because if you ask yourself that question, you just might have a life-changing encounter with God as we unpack this passage of Scripture. And so you think about what's happening here. Everything screams grace. What God's doing is he's giving the gift of grace. Why is that a hard gift to receive? Here's why. Because it requires us to destroy our pride. To receive grace requires that we must destroy our own pride. God opposes the, but gives grace to the, so you're saying there's a condition to grace? Yeah, there's different kinds of grace. There's God's grace that comes in and saves you, and there's no condition on that. There's a condition on this kind of grace, and it's your humility, and it's because of our pride that we block grace. It's because of our pride that we resist grace, and so you see what happens here, a passage of humility that screams grace. Here's this young gal, no qualification. If you've got your Bible, go back and look at verses five through seven from last week. They were blameless. They were righteous. Why doesn't he? He could have picked any girl to come to. Think about this. This is the God of the universe. He's going to have his son enter the world. He could have picked the daughter of a king. He could have picked the daughter of a priest, daughter of a rabbi. He picks this undescript girl. Where does he come? Galilee, Nazareth. And later, one of the disciples says, and wouldn't you love it if you just kind of, if you're one of those people like me, you just blurt stuff out sometimes? Wouldn't you love it if it got canonized and put in scripture forever? But this one, one of the disciples goes, Can anything good come from Nazareth? When he hears about Jesus. Nazareth, it's not a great place to be from. And let me tell you something, Mary, I understand. I'm from Flint, Michigan. Anybody, you, y'all know of Flint. I can tell by your response. And if you know something about Flint, it's probably not good. Like everything that there is to know about Flint, not good. Raleigh is oftentimes one of the top five places to live, and then Raleigh gets snotty and they think that they're better than Durham. Durham's like six, and Raleigh's five on these lists of like best places to live. Flint is like 235. 
Okay, Flint's been like the last place to live on some of those lists before. If you think about recently, it's probably you think about the, the water. I had somebody say to me this week, you're from the Flint. Did you drink the water? I'm like, hey, does it explain something to you? Why are you asking me this question? Give me some grace here, man. Nazareth, little town, maybe 500 people, the most 2,000 people live there. Archaeologists have even a hard time finding it, locating it. It's so rural and out there. It's a military outpost. Some of you served in the military. You know what it was? It was a hotbed for immorality. And so you've got the opposite in Jerusalem. You want to be blessed? The angel appears to Zechariah, this priest in the temple of Jerusalem right before the Holy of Holies. Then we come here. This hotbed of immorality in Nazareth. To this little girl, probably can't even read. She's 14 years old, scholars think. Somewhere between 12 and 14. We'll go with the higher end. 14 years old. She's got some dreams, though. She's doing her daily routine. Isn't it interesting how often in Scripture God comes to us in the mundane whether it's Gideon on the threshing floor, whether it's the disciples cleaning their nets, whether it's her doing household, she's doing laundry or dishes or some household chores here. And this angel comes and speaks to her. There's no reason for the angel to come to her. There's no reason for the angel to come to this place unless, unless God's showing us this is all by grace. And this angel speaks and then she's troubled. Why is she troubled? Why do you think she's troubled? Ah, uh, well, how about the fact she's a virgin and she's finding out she's about to have a baby? That would be a great guess by you if you thought that was why she was troubled, but you'd be wrong. What's the right answer? Don't look at me. Look at your Bible. If you brought a Bible, let's see what the Bible says. What is, she, is it because there's an angel here? That'd be a good guess. We saw last week, Zechariah gets so scared of the angel, he thinks his face is going to melt off. Everybody who sees angels in the Bible is afraid. The angel always has to start off with, don't be afraid. Wouldn't you get tired of every time you met somebody? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. <laughs> That'd be a good guess about why she's troubled. That's not why she's troubled, though. What does she say? What does the word say? As Christians, we are people of the word. We believe that God's word is authoritative in our life, so the words of the word matter. So what does the word say? Verse 29, when it says she's troubled, but she was greatly troubled, and here's why, at the saying, or at his words, at what he said. She's not troubled by the fact that she's going to have a baby. You know why? Verse 29, she doesn't know she's going to have a baby yet. She hasn't been told that by verse 29. She's already troubled. Doesn't say she's troubled because the angel appeared. She's troubled by what the words of the angel were. What were the words of the angel? Go back a verse, verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She's troubled at his saying. And then he reemphasizes it again. When things, are, when things are repeated in Scripture, they're being emphasized. Look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. Why? For you have found favor with God. O favored one, you have found favor with God. That word favor comes from the Greek word charis. It's the word for grace. Jesus, uh, one other time, the same, same idea as the favored one about all believers in Ephesians chapter 1. Those who have been greatly graced. Mary is a recipient of grace, not a dispenser of grace. She's, she's troubled here because she's being told she's given, who, me? Much grace? Favor, I've been favored, I've been given grace, I'm receiving, I'm a recipient of grace. So what is grace? Here's a simple definition of grace for you. Grace is when God gives you something good you don't deserve. Grace is when God gives you something good you do not deserve. Some people have a, an easier time memorizing grace when you contrast it with mercy. Mercy, and we'll talk more about mercy next week, mercy is when you do not receive what you deserve. And so, you deserve the wrath of God. You're his enemies. We read that passage of scripture earlier when we were worshiping together. You're his enemies, and so you deserve the wrath of God. But when you place your faith in Christ, instead he puts that punishment on his son, Jesus Christ, you do not receive what you do deserve. That's mercy. Grace is when you receive what you don't deserve. You receive Christ. You're given a gift. You're given grace. Here's the problem with grace, though. 
We're given grace in, in many ways throughout life. We're given forgiveness. We don't deserve that. We're given reconciliation with God. We don't deserve that. We're given a place in heaven. We don't deserve that. We're given provisions in life. We don't deserve that. We're given grace all the time. We're given gifts in life. We don't deserve that. All these gracious things that are given to us. But usually in church, when we talk about grace, what we think of is like a new beginning. And it's true that in Christ, old things pass away, new things come. It's true that you receive forgiveness, that your sins as though they were scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. That is true. Here's how a lot of times we hear that because of the generation that we live in. We live in a video game generation. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We are in the moment, at that moment, right then. So here's what happens in a video game. For those of you who've never played a video game before, your kids are playing it, can, and you're a super parent, so they're playing like a math video game, right? That's because that's all you let your kids play on their, their video game devices, I'm sure. And so they do two plus two equals five, and they're like, man, I messed that one up. I knew that one. I got it wrong. So they just hit the reset button, and they start over. And then they can show you what a scholar they are when they give you 100% on the math game, but they kept hitting reset to get the fresh start every time. And really, it's like that other stuff never happened. And so it's true that grace washes us clean, and it'll wash away all of our unrighteousness. It's true, all that, that you get a fresh start. But here's the reality. Once you've lived life for a little while, you realize, well, I've done some sinful things to try and get a fresh start. And that's still true. And I'm new with God, but I still have the consequences of my sin. There's still ripple effects. There's still things that happen. And so maybe I got a divorce because I needed a fresh start. And that's sin, and God forgives sin. He hates divorce, but he can forgive sin, wash you clean. You can have a new beginning. You can be right with him. But that other person still exists. That's still part of your story. Or, or maybe you got pregnant, you weren't expecting to, and you didn't have the money for it, or whatever reason, and so you had an abortion. I'm just talking about people out there. Last that I heard was one in four women in the church have had an abortion, so I'm talking to 25% of our women here statistically. And it's true, you've forgiven, but you know what it's like. That memory doesn't go away. There still can be shame. There still can be guilt. Here's what grace does. Grace is not just a new beginning. Grace enters into your story. Grace comes into the story with you. So you're, you're washed clean. Though your sins were scarlet, you're as white as snow, and now Jesus is going to be with you to deal with the shame, to deal with the guilt, to, to work, walk in those relationships, whatever they are, whether it's divorce, whether it's abortion, whether, whether it's whatever it was that you did, grace enters in. In fact, that's the very thing that we're seeing in this passage of Scripture as grace puts on flesh because Jesus Christ is the gift of grace. The incarnation, the word incarnation, the Latin word incarnation, means to enter into or to become flesh. He's entering into our story. And I talk about why you can't sterilize this passage of Scripture because what we don't talk about and what you don't see when somebody plugs in their blow-up nativity scene and everybody's happy and there's a star and the shepherds are rejoicing and all that, what you don't see is that Jesus for the rest of his life would be accused of being a bastard. But we see that in the Bible. We just sterilize that stuff out. John chapter 8. And the Pharisees say, we weren't born of sexual immorality. You know what they're saying? You were. You know what the rumors are going to be about Mary? Because everybody's not just going to go, oh, really, an angel overshadowed you and the Holy Spirit impregnated Aha! No. Jesus entering into a story. He, he wrote this story to be this way. And he's coming into a story doused with adultery. We know that Joseph's plan is to divorce her. Divorce is part of the story until God intervenes with an angel. It's messy. There's going to be rumors and gossip and all kinds of stuff's going to happen. And God enters into the story. That's just the birth story, by the way. We're not talking about lepers he comes into contact with, women who are caught in adultery, the unclean people that come and wash his feet. He's not talking about all that. He, he walks right into all of our stories. He can walk into your story too. That's grace. But here's the problem. We don't receive the grace, not because it's not an incredible gift. It's not like fruitcake, where it's just like, ah, take this back. No, no, don't give it to someone else next year. It's not like that. 
Grace is like, hey, grace is awesome. We can sing about grace is amazing. We can tell stories of grace and here's people's grace stories. We can, grace is awesome stuff. But we don't receive it. You know why? Pride. Pride stops us. God opposes the proud. He gives, what does he give to the humble? Grace. Grace he gives to the humble. So we have to humble ourselves. But here's the reality with pride. A lot of times we make pride too simple as Christians too. And so I want to deal with this in our community as a church as a whole so, so we recognize this in our own lives and we can help each other with this one another. A lot of times when we think of pride, we only think of like the cocky person, the arrogant person that boasts about all the things that they do. There are lots of shades of pride. And one of them actually disguises itself as humility. And so I want you to realize that what Mary has here, I don't think Mary is proud in this passage of Scripture, but remember, Luke's not writing to Mary. He's writing to Theophilus. Who's Theophilus? Most excellent Theophilus. <laughs> I've known some high achievers. Most of them struggle with pride because they want credit for what they've done. There's another kind of pride too, though. It's the person who, who's had things happen to them or are sacrificed in some ways, and they've got self-pity, which then looks like humility, but it's actually pride. Let me read you what John Piper says about it. He describes two prides in one of his books. He said, boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I've sacrificed so much. The reason self-pity does not look like pride is because it appears to be needy. But get this, but the needs arise from a wounded ego, and the desire is not really for others to see them as helpless, but as heroes. The need that self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It's the response of unapplauded pride. Do you see how deceptive our sin can be? And so the religious person has a hard time receiving grace. You know why? Because they want to be acknowledged for their devotion. The moralist, the moralist has a hard time receiving uh, grace. Do you know why? Because they, want, they, they don't do the naughty stuff everyone else does, and so they want to be acknowledged for their sacrifices. The things that, all the fun they're missing out on, they should receive glory for. See, the real problem is that we're glory thieves, and we try to do it in all kinds of different deceptive ways. And so the victim, the victim is, has a hard time receiving grace, and it's not because they've been wounded so much. It's because they want acknowledgement for being wounded so much. You see how deceptive pride can be? And the achiever, the, mo the ones who want to be called most excellent, like Theophilus. So I want acknowledgement for the things that I've done. Can you just see how great I am? Would you just show me how glorious I am? And you know what the problem is? All of it's pride, and it blocks us from receiving grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you know who the truly humble are? The humble are the ones that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you're poor in spirit. You don't bring anything to the table. You don't just appear needy so that you'll receive glory because of your neediness. You recognize you are needy, and the only one that can meet your need is Jesus. See, what's happening here in this passage, we get the incarnation of Jesus, that he enters into our story, that is grace. He gives us what we don't deserve, but what's he doing here? He's beginning a rescue mission. Luke chapter 19, a little bit later, verse 10, I came to seek and save that which was lost. You know what was lost? You, me. We're what's lost. You know what every rescue story has in common? It's the person being rescued is helpless. I watched a story online this week. I, I recommend you check it out. The guy's name was Brian Birdwell. Brian Birdwell was a retired uh, U.S. Uh, lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army. And he was working in the Pentagon on September 11, 2001. And so he tells a story of what it was like that day when he went into the restroom, came out, walked about seven or eight feet, and then a plane came crashing into that building. The way he describes it, he says an 80-ton plane comes crashing into a building going 530 miles per hour, 
carrying 3,000 gallons of fuel. It explodes. He's 15 to 20 yards from where the plane hit the building. And he talked about what it was like to be tossed around those hallways like a rag doll, to then wake up, be covered in black soot, the taste of jet fuel in his mouth. He said the temperature in the room was somewhere between 300 and 350 degrees. When he lifted his arms up, this flesh was falling off like wax. He gets so gruesome, I won't share all of those details, but he said that he got to the point where he did what the military never trained him to do. He surrendered. He gave up on life. He crossed that line from the zeal to live and to fight and to struggle to survive, and he, he knew he was going to die, and he cried out to Jesus, I'm coming, Jesus. And then he laid there, and you get an idea how tough he is because his next statement that he says in his videos, he says, and I just laid there, and it wasn't happening, and I said, come on, let's get on with it. I'm ready to die. And he wasn't dying. And so he pushed himself up on this wall, and there's this wall of this hallway in the Pentagon that he was super familiar with. And he said, I didn't know which way to go. I was so disoriented. I didn't know which way was safety. I didn't know which way was danger. I didn't know what to do. He was totally helpless. He was needy. And then four guys came running into this hallway. Four guys that he knew. He named each one of them. They didn't know who he was because he was so burned they couldn't, they couldn't recognize him. And they ran up to him. And instinctively, they grabbed each one of them. There are four of them grabbed one of his limbs. And the way he described what happened next is he said, you know, like hot wax when it cools? Is that's what my flesh was like. And they grabbed me to lift me up, and they just ripped the flesh off my body. And he said, then they had to take their arms and put them like a stretcher behind me and lift me up and carry me out of that building. And by God's grace, he survived. Let me tell you what he said. I want to read it to you word for word. Brian Birdwell said, you live to tell about it. Not because the United States Army made me the toughest guy in that building, but I think he might have been. But because the toughest guy who ever walked this earth 2,000 years ago sits at the right hand of the Father, and he had something else in mind. That was God's grace. But you know what has to happen to our pride? Our pride has to be destroyed the way his flesh was destroyed. He had 39 reconstructive surgeries since that time period. Our pride has to be destroyed. How does our pride get destroyed? When we come to the realization that like he was in that hallway, we are helpless. That God's on a search and rescue mission coming for us because we need him. We didn't just need a hand. We had no hope. We were without hope, without God. Then reconciled to Christ. Then we need, we need his grace daily. You wouldn't even be breathing if it wasn't for God's grace. You're getting what you don't deserve. And so what do we do? How do we destroy our pride? That becomes the question. How do we destroy pride? Here's the reality. It depends on your scenario. So you're the religious person and you want acknowledgement because of your devotion? You'd have never even looked at God's direction if it wasn't for him in your life. So you give the grace to God. You're an achiever. You want to be like, you're one of those high achievers. I know there's a lot of them in this room right now. I see some of you. I know some of your stories. Most excellent. And put your name there. Stop trusting in what you've done and realize that it's all about what's been done for you by Jesus Christ. And anything you have actually done is because you've been gifted with breath and talent and anything else. And it all, stop being a glory thief. So you've been hurt. You've been wounded. God, he sees that. He hears that. He's there. But you want glory from other people for it? No, you go to him. He's the suffering servant, not you. He's the one who gave it all, not you. So stop trusting in yourself is the simple answer and start looking to Christ in your family, with your kids, and you start making it practical in your work. Who's providing? And so God opposes the proud. If you answer you, proud, proud, he gives grace, which you do not deserve, to the humble. The humble are the needy. And you know what happens when you humble yourself like Mary in this passage of Scripture? Is that God puts his power on display. 
And so your pride must be destroyed and his power put on display. That's our second point. Look what happens in the next part of this passage. I'll pick up in verse 31, which I already read to you. And behold, you will conceive in your womb. Your womb will become the holy of holies, Mary, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And here's the understatement of all Scripture, and he will be great. How do we describe Jesus right here? Let's just say he's great. It's a contrast from last week, though. Last week, John the Baptist was described as Great in the sight of the Lord. Here there's no disclaimer. Jesus is just great. You know why? Because Jesus isn't just great like, what's the greatest thing I can think of and then I'll compare it to Jesus. No, Jesus defines greatness. And so if you want to know what greatness is, you look at Jesus' life and then anything else you have, it doesn't hold a candle to Jesus. Jesus is great. He will be great and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. That's as clear as you can be for he's the Son of God. In your womb, Mary. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, fulfilling prophecy here from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we could talk about how royal and majestic that is, but look at the next part, and I want to talk about it personally. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And so we can talk about him, and we can talk about what happened, why that prophecy is fulfilled in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and those details, but I think about Mary here. And I wonder if she remembered this promise. I wonder if she remembered this promise when they're fleeing from Herod, and Herod's coming to, don't sterilize the story, he's coming to kill us and going to kill all those babies in Bethlehem, and they flee to Egypt. And I wonder if she thought, but his kingdom's never going to end. So this king can't kill this, this king. But then he gets turned over to the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law, the most powerful men, and they're, they're part of society. And I wonder if she thinks to herself, but his kingdom will never end. But what about when he's hanging on the cross and he cries out, it is finished? Do you think she thought, but God, you said his kingdom would never end. And it doesn't, does it? He will reign forever. But in this moment, Mary said, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She's not doubting here like Zechariah was last week because she's not asking for a sign. She's just confused about, she's only 14, but she knows she hasn't done what she needs to do in order to have a baby. And so she asked this question and the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Holy Son of God. Okay, now it makes sense. I don't know what I'd be thinking if I was Mary. I don't know what she thinks. We didn't get told here. That's crazy. What are you talking about? And if you doubt that this could be reality, well, God created Adam out of nothing. He created the whole universe out of nothing. He doesn't need a man and a woman. He can create life anytime he wants to. He's capable, and we're going to find out why in just a minute. And behold, your relative, you want a sign? Here's a sign. She didn't ask for one, but here is a sign. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And so think about that from Mary's perspective. She's probably seen Elizabeth shed tears. She knows about her barrenness. She knows how painful that is, and she knows how old she is. It says, this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. You want a summary of the whole reason? Here's what happened. You want to know how you can have a baby? Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. God puts his power on display. He shows us that all throughout the Bible. You want some other verses? Go to Genesis chapter 18. You go to the beginning of the Bible, all the way through, and to the end of the Bible, and you'll see these promises. Abraham doesn't think that he can have a kid. Sarah laughs about it, and what does God say? Is anything too hard for the Lord? What do you want God to do? Is anything too hard for the Lord? This would take a miracle. Well, you know what? God does those. He's kind of in the business of that deal. So you got you mean you think about your person I just pray that they would come they would never come to Christ. They're the farthest from God. Hey, God still does miracles, just so you know. I'm hopeless. I've done this pattern. I keep going back to this sin. I keep going back to this thing. You don't think God can free you from your bondage? God still does miracles. 
He goes throughout the whole Bible. Job, Job's this righteous guy, this blameless guy, and then he starts to question God. God rebukes him, and then you know what Job says? Job chapter 42 and verse 2. I know that you can do all things. (laughs) I've been humbled, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah, the prophet, you keep going through the Bible. Oh, Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. You get to the New Testament, and we should pay attention to this, North Raleigh, Durham, Cary, wherever you're from, Wake Forest, because we're rich people, just so you know. This rich guy comes to Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Say, hey, sell all your stuff and come follow me. Everybody's going to come after Jesus. got to come follow me. you got to deal with your idols to repent of your sin. And so he doesn't do it. Pride. It goes away sad. Then the disciples ask a question. A lot of times we don't talk about this part of the story. Because Jesus is told them, hey, it's, it's impossible for a rich man to enter heaven. And, Jesus, and then the disciples say to Jesus, who can be saved? And then Jesus says this. This should cause all of our hearts to rejoice. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What does Paul say in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 3? Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. How? According to his power, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's at work within us. How did, how did you have a baby? Power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we don't like to talk about the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's a little scary. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to do. That's right, because you don't control God. But he can do whatever he wants. What does he want to do? He goes through the Bible, and not just statements that he says, he closes the mouth of lions. He shows up in a fiery furnace. Even when one of his prophets runs from him, God shows up. Puts him in a fish. <laughs> Read that story. I'll give you a picture of Jesus. It points you right to him. Three days he's in the belly of the fish. What do you think the imagery is there? You see, ultimately, you see it in our own stories. This week I was reading, uh, just knowing I was talking about grace, I went to an old book, uh, Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace? Great book, you should check it out. But in the front of it I had stuffed some stories that some of y'all had submitted when we did a, a series called Grace Stories. And I was reading through it and rem- reminding myself of what God's done in some of y'all's lives. And some of you, you've seen, you've been delivered from sin, some of you. You've experienced healing from pain, death of loved ones, freedom from bondage, all kinds of great stuff in there. And some of it, some of the most amazing ones were, God gave me the strength to persevere in the mundane. How about that for a demonstration of God's power? Change another diaper. Go to work, even though you hate your job. Keep being faithful. That's God's power. But the picture of God's power being put on display here in this passage of Scripture is the ultimate picture of God's power. Not just a virgin being born here, but God's Son entering the earth, grace entering into your story, into this mess, into the adultery, into the divorce, into the abortions, into all of this stuff coming right here in this passage of Scripture. And you know what it is? It's God sending His Son. Brian Birdwell in that story, when I was watching it, he talks about after he got carried out there outside the building of the Pentagon, he got rushed over to the Georgetown Hospital, Georgetown University Hospital. He said while he was there, one of the most significant things that happened was that Vice President Cheney had grounded all the flights. That meant care flights too. And so they had to do emergency stuff right on the scene. He talked about how painful that was, how difficult that was. And he said in that moment, what I was hoping would happen on that Pentagon floor, I believed was happening in this emergency room at Georgetown University Hospital. He thought it was the last moments of his life. And so he said he was very intentional about the acts that he was doing because he wanted to die with dignity. And before they, they put the trach into him, he asked the doctor to remove his wedding ring. He said, usually they cut jewelry off because of your body swells in a, in a fire thing. But the, the nurse grabbed a hold of the ring, pulled it off. His, hand, his finger came off like a glove, the skin, bleeding everywhere. He says, only the Lord could hear how loud I was screaming in my mind, the pain that he was experiencing. And he said, but symbolically, I was saying goodbye to my son, Matthew, and my wife, Mel. And he said, but moments later, his wife showed up at the hospital, which was critical to him, meant a lot to him. And he talked through some of those moments. 
And he said right before he was going to go into surgery, he had asked the chaplain to pray. And they were putting tubes in him everywhere, trach, all that stuff. He just asked him to pray that last prayer. And he prayed. When that was done, there was a military general that was there. And he looked at Mel, his wife, and said, has Matthew been up here to say goodbye to his father? He said, your husband's dying. Your son needs to come say goodbye. And Brian said at that moment, he said, that was wisdom by him to say that. And so my wife went and got my son. And he came in there. By that point, he couldn't talk at all. I had the trach in. And he said, but I remember seeing my son come walking in and say, I love you, Dad. I mouthed back to him, I love you. He said, in 20 plus years, this military experience, the hardest thing he's ever done, say goodbye to his son. And then he said, I can't even imagine how difficult it was for God the Father to say goodbye to his son for three days after he died for your sins, my sins, on a cross. See, it wasn't that he said goodbye to him here, he's sending him on this mission, but he knows what's going to happen. He knows that Jesus is going to live the sinless life. But he's going to be tempted just like you and I are tempted with everything that we're tempted with. But doesn't sin. So that when he dies on the cross, he can die for your sins and for my sins. And then what happens is he takes upon that wrath. So you can receive mercy. He takes upon the wrath. The wrath that you deserve, he took on the cross. But the greatest demonstration of his power that nothing's impossible for God wasn't that he rose from the dead physically. It's that he overcame sin and death. Those are the greatest obstacles to us connecting with God. And some of you have experienced new life in Christ because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. If so, say amen, amen. amen. If you haven't, then God wants to demonstrate that power in your life this Christmas. If you have, how does God want to demonstrate that power in your life this Christmas? Because he does. And maybe, maybe it's demonstrating his power and allowing a prideful person to lay down their pride and humble themselves. Maybe, maybe it's you surrendering something you've had control over, your kids, your job, your dreams to him. Maybe it's you continuing to be faithful in the mundane that you want to run from, but that God's got you in because he wants to teach you, I love you, I love you no matter what you do, I love you no matter how boring it is, I love you. What does God want to do to demonstrate his power because God still does the impossible? For those who humble themselves, destroy their pride. And you know what you learn to do when it happens? You learn to delight in Christ even through death. You learn to delight in Christ even through death. You must destroy your pride. God will display his power, and you'll learn to delight in Christ even through death. That's what we see next with Mary. Just one more verse. And you've got this young gal. Remember the chaos that's going on here? She's just doing her daily routine. She's doing some chores. This angel shows up. She's troubled because she's told she's graced. And then she's told that as a 14-year-old virgin, she's going to give birth to the Messiah. Can you imagine the conversation that's going to come with her and her dad? Got any fathers here? Can you imagine your daughter coming to you and going, Dad, I'm, I know I'm 14, but I'm pregnant. But don't worry, Dad. It's by the Holy Spirit. And it's the Messiah. I would be like, oh, man, not only is she sinning, she's crazy. Like, you, you realize what's going to happen here for this girl? She knows she can be rejected by her family. We already know what Joseph's going to do, but she doesn't. She's probably saying the end of her marriage. We know the Bible teaches in Deuteronomy, if you're caught in adultery, you get stoned to death. We know that it still happens in the New Testament. In John chapter 8, there's a woman that's brought before Jesus. She's caught in the very act of adultery. Should we stone her? We know that Jesus shows grace, gives her what she doesn't deserve. Without sin, you cast the first stone, and he doesn't condemn her. We know that she knows she's graced by God, but she doesn't know what's going to happen with people. This could cost her very life. And with that context, look at verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. 
let it be to me according to your word. I'll do whatever you say. Or the NIV says, may it be to me as you have said. And then the angel said, here's your instructions for everything you're supposed to do from this day forward. Nope. Well, how about you walk by faith from here, Mary? And the angel departed from her. Hmm. Could you say those words? Why is she able to say, may it, whatever you want. Here's my life. I'll die to myself. When I say to, to the light in Christ, even through death, sure, through the most difficult circumstances, sure, through, through loss, sure, that, 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 that there too. But what I'm talking about is death to self. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me, die to yourself. It's a joy that you get. The end is not the death. That is the means through which you get the end, which is Christ, which is where you're going to find satisfaction. That, that statement that Jesus makes to that woman at the well, you want to have living water? You want me? You want satisfaction? I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. What he's saying is you want real satisfaction? It comes from me. And how do you experience him? Die to yourself. What she's acknowledging here is what Jesus will teach later. If anyone wants to save his life, he'll lose his life for me and for my sake. So when we die to ourselves, then we experience Christ. How can she do this? Well, it's the first part of the verse that tells us the answer. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. The language she uses there is the lowest form of servant, female servant that there is. I'm a handmaid of the Lord. I don't even belong to myself. Here's the reality. All of you who said amen, that you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you've been bought at a price. You are not your own. You don't even belong to you. So it should be whatever you say, God. But then when we don't, do you know why? Our pride. It sneaks in in lots of ways. We think we know better than he does. We don't say that, but we think it and we live it. And so... We don't want to say, not my will, but your will be done, which her son will say later. We don't want to humble ourselves. Like her, She's giving us a glimpse of what her son's going to do later. It's talked about in Philippians chapter 2, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he was equal with God. He humbled himself. He became obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And so we must die. To, we want to experience him. We must die to ourselves, and that's when we experience him. So we've got to come to him and say, may it be to me as you have said, in whatever stage of life he's got you. May it be to me as you have said in the mundaneness of changing these diapers. May it be to me as you have said in this entry-level job that I've been in for way too long. May it be to me as you have said being underemployed. May it be to me as you have said being unemployed. May it be to me as you have said in leading my family, men, in praying for my spouse, in being bold with the gospel, in repenting. May it be to me as you have said in surrendering whatever it is that's that's blocking you from God, that's hindering you to Him. May it be to me as you have said with my dreams, with my life. Can you say that? Because that's surrender. And that's where you find joy in knowing Christ, even through death, death to self. It could have meant physical death for her. It didn't. But it certainly meant dying to everything that she held dear at that moment. And she was able because she was the Lord's servant. Are you? See, the gift of grace is hard to receive. Not because it's a bad gift like fruitcake or, or something like that. It's a hard gift to receive because you've got to destroy your pride. And then God's going to put his power on display, which you have no control over. And you're, you're going to die to yourself. But you're going to find joy. 